Well, good morning and welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Go ahead and come on in and find a seat. And once you do, would you stand with us this morning and let's begin by reading together Psalm 103, verse 1. And if you would, read it aloud with us. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Let's read that together one more time. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Well, this morning I got up, got ready and walked into my home office and I sat in the corner in my cozy chair and got out my Bible and opened it up to Psalm 97 and it was time for my daily Psalm. And uh, then I heard a noise at 5.15 in the morning and it was coming from the room above, which is my two-year-old daughter Ellie's room. And I began to pray, which it's a good thing to pray when you're studying the Bible, but I was praying that she'd go back to sleep because I knew that if she didn't stop, then I'd have to wake Hannah up because I was about to leave. And I was like, okay, will, will she just go back to sleep? Well, she quieted down and then I continued to read the Psalm. And about the time the Psalm uh, was over, I heard some noise again. And this time she was up there singing. And so I just sat there and closed my eyes. It wasn't too loud, it was just soft. And I got to hear my two-year-old daughter, Ellie, sing. And after a little while, I heard her start to sing, Dada, Dada. And I was just sitting there with a smile on my face, my eyes closed, after just spending some time in the Word. And I couldn't help but think about this moment right now, where we get to gather together and we get to sing praises to our Heavenly Father, and I thought, man, what does God feel when his people sing his praises? I know he feels worshiped, he feels adored, but does he have some of the same feelings that I felt this morning hearing my daughter sing my name? I felt loved and I felt desired. So this morning as we sing, as we sing his praises, as we tell our souls to worship the one true God, Maybe just keep that picture in mind. How does that make God feel when we are obedient to him and sing his praises? Does he feel loved? Does he feel desired by you this morning? So do you lift your voice? Let's praise his name together. Praise God from whom blessings flow. Praise him all. Fellowship family. Hey, we're glad you're here worshiping with us this morning. And I've got a little challenge for you. You know, we've been singing about God's faithfulness. We're going to hear more about it in the service. We're going to sing, continue to sing, and we'll be reminded of that God is good. He's good all the time. He's good in the hard times, and he's especially good in the happy times. And so well, I want, I'm, for the next few minutes, every time that I say God is good, I want you to say all the time. Are you ready to try it? God is good all the time. Oh, you all are good. So much better than last service. 
God is good all the time. Amen. Oh, listen, I got some good news and bad news for you this morning. Which one do you want first? Bad news. We always do bad news at our house first. Okay. You may have read on Friday that we, we don't have occupancy for our Bentonville location yet, so the, the start date's going to be moved back a little while. We're not sure exactly the date yet, but it'll be moved back a little bit. But the good news is that God is good all the time. Amen. That's right. He's good all the time. We're so excited for that. We're flexible, right? We've been through a couple years of being flexible, so we're still flexible. And with that launch coming, when it does, and being pushed back a little bit, this campus won't go to two services until then. That campus will be at two services. And so you've got a couple questions to ask yourself and ask your family. The first question is, when will we attend? What time? At 9 or 10.30? Both here or there? And the second question is, where will we serve? We need you to serve. Think about it. We're multiplying locations. We're going from, from one on Sunday morning to two. And so we need extra people to serve. We need everyone to jump in. We need a paradigm shift to happen where church is not only not just coming to, to worship, but when are we going to worship and where are we going to serve on Sunday mornings? We need people to work in the coffee bar and in the foyer, in the parking lots with our young children. And we need you to let us know how you want to serve. And so be thinking about that. Hey, a few things going on. If you're new, we're especially glad you're here. We might even put you serving right away, okay? So just stop by the middle booth in the foyer. We'd love to connect with you. Um, just hear your name, maybe hear your story. We'd love the opportunity to schedule a time to buy you coffee and tell you a little bit about our church. Uh, we'd love to have you be a part of it. Ladies that are married, how many of you, raise your hand, if you would like your husband to grow in wisdom? Yes, I see those hands. I see some elbows flying. Listen, we're gonna be studying the book of Proverbs with our men early in the mornings on Tuesday and Wednesday mornings. Tuesday will be right here on this campus in the lodge. On Wednesdays, we'll be in Springdale, right behind Red Kite Coffee um, at our Springdale location. We'd love to have you join us. We're gonna study the book of Proverbs early in the morning. It starts a week from Tuesday or a week from Wednesday. Join us if you can. Scan the QR code. It'll give you more information. You don't have to sign up. Just show up. Set their alarm clock for them. Um, next, merge. We love marriage, we love preparing people for marriage, and if you are engaged or you are seriously dating, next Sunday, merge starts. And so if you know someone in that category, you can encourage them to do this. We love, for, we love happy marriages, we love holy marriages, and this is a great start to that, and so we encourage you to encourage others to be a part. And then lastly, we've got a new app, and you may have seen it, it's really cool. Um, you can watch services on it. Everything I'm talking about just now is on it. We encourage you to download it. Um, you can actually submit prayer requests. You can actually pray for other people's prayer requests. You can press the button pray and then know you, you prayed for them. And so download that. It's really incredible. Um, there's a lot of things going on and we are excited. But here's the principle this morning. God is faithful. And no matter what's going on, whether things are good or whether they're challenging or whether it's downright you're struggling, we know that God is good all the time. Amen. Would you stand and worship the Lord with us this morning? Sing of his faithfulness together. Father of kindness, you have poured out grace. You brought me out of darkness, you Filled me with peace, giver of mercy, you're my hope in time of need. Lord, I can't help but see. Sing, He's faithful, faithful, you are faithful. Yes, name 
Continue to sing of his faithfulness this morning. Kindness, your kindness drew me in. 
Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. As we continue to worship this morning and sing of how good our God is that we have hope in Him, May we just reflect for a moment how amazing it is that we have a God, the one true God, the God that we follow is a God of redemption. He redeems. He's a God that desires reconciliation. And he's a God that loves us very much. So just bow your heads for a moment. Father, today, just know just even a little more deeply the love that you have for us than we knew yesterday.
Would you stand and sing this together? Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to where my sin and bear my shame. The cross is spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living oh we sing a hallelujah please the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living Lord. then came the morning that sealed the promise you were buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me sing it out, lift your voice then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, the yours is the victory. salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living oh hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who gives us hope, who is our hope and our peace and our righteousness. So this morning, as we look at the book of Ruth and we see you as redeemer, as promise maker and promise keeper, will we continue to worship you as we hear your word taught in this place. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Previously in the book of Ruth, the drama continues. We began with the story of a couple who lived in ancient Israel as 
the land came under famine. They lost everything, and so they decided, hey, we'll try our luck somewhere else. We'll leave the land of our family and of our God and go somewhere else. See if another nation's God will bless us a little more. And so Elimelech and Naomi set off for Moab, and while they're there, their sons marry Moabite women, and then disaster strikes there too. All three men in the family die, leaving three widows. And so there's a decisive moment where Naomi hears, oh, that the God of my ancestors, he's blessing the land, so maybe I should go back to him now. She decides to head back, and her two daughters-in-law have a choice to make. Are they going to stick with Naomi, who really has nothing to offer them? Out of loyalty, will they stick with her and go with her back to this foreign land, or will they go back to their parents where they have a better chance of making it? Uh, both girls initially say, yeah, I'm in, but when the, the facing the cost, one daughter-in-law walks away, but Ruth stays loyal. They return back to Bethlehem, and by coincidence, Ruth goes to work in the field of the family member who actually would have responsibility to take care of them. And God starts blessing them immensely through this man of character. And then under Naomi's guidance, Ruth makes a very forward offer of marriage to Boaz saying, marry me, redeem this situation. And Boaz recognizes the godliness, the loyalty, the love in Ruth, and he sees a match for himself and he says, I'm gonna do this, but, and here's the dramatic twist, the story's been building, we're seeing this perfect story unfolding, we're all ready for a happy ending, and then there's a catch that threatens to wreck the whole thing. There's another family member that's in the way that has the first right to this redemption story. So Boaz says, I've got to go talk to him, but I'm going to take care of this quickly. And that's the cliffhanger that we end on in chapter 3. Before we move to Ruth, chapter 4, verse 1, the climax of the story. Turn to Ruth, if you will, and let's dive in together. We read in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Okay, we got to talk about some cultural stuff here because I don't know if you've read Ruth chapter 4 before, but it's puzzling to me. It reads like this mystery of coded messages where everybody's playing by some set of rules that I don't know what they are, and, and there's some negotiation going on with technical terms, and so we need to get a little picture of what's going on in the background here. So let's just walk through a few of the historical things happening. First of all, the town gate. Um, this is a significant place because in these ancient villages, the way it would work is they'd have a wall around the village to keep them safe and one gate that everyone had to go in and out of. Um, think Lord of the Rings when they, they sorry. Um, so... <laughs> This is the place where they would meet. They would have to come in and out, and you knew this was the place where everyone would meet. So Boaz knows that if he's going to meet somebody, all he has to do is go sit at that gate. That is the place that everybody passes through. So he knows if he sits there long enough, he's going to run into this guardian redeemer coming in and out of the village to go to the fields and work. So he goes and he sits, and he sees the one he's waiting for. Now, what is this guardian redeemer? Some of your translations might say kinsman redeemer. Now, what's going on here is there's an entire tradition that's being referenced out of the Mosaic law. When I say Mosaic law or the law of Moses, I'm referring to the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, these five books together would be called either the law of Moses you may have heard them called the Pentateuch or the Hebrew word Torah. And what it is, it is the founding constitution of the nation of Israel. Those five books told the Israelites who they were as a people, what their story was, where they came from, and then it guided what their culture and society was supposed to look like, how they were supposed to live with God in the land. And so it has some stories that maybe we're more familiar with, like the story of Noah and the ark and the story of Moses leading the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. But it also has all of those chapters that wreck our Bible and your reading plans. Like all of the list of rules and laws and regulations that we bog down in. And what's interesting, while it might not make really exciting reading for us as we're going through it, it's crucial information for understanding the story as it unfolds. And those laws, they cover just about everything you could think of. And one of the things the laws set up is kind of the equivalent of a social safety net. There's all the rules 
for how, as a nation, they are to take care of people that get in a bad situation. Somebody who's vulnerable, who's poor, who loses everything, how are we to respond to make sure people don't fall through the cracks in our covenant community called Israel? So here are a couple of things that are going on that are all going to come into play in Ruth chapter 4. If you remember back when we studied Joshua, I believe it was about a year ago, we saw that when Israel came into the land that God had promised them, God divided up the land into each of the 12 tribes. So he said, you're going to have this section of land, this tribe's going to have this section, and then they even divided it further by clan. And they said, this clan, you get this section of land, you get this section of land, and in a farming culture, land is everything. That's your home, that's your source of income, that's your source of wealth. Uh, to be given land, think about this for a group of slaves to go from being a, a group of slaves building storehouses to Pharaoh to being landowners in their new nation. It's a radical transformation. But it was even more than that. As God is setting up this just society, he doles out the land evenly throughout all the tribes. And during the years that would follow, people could buy and sell land. They could make trades. People could accumulate wealth and do well. But there was something special that happened in Israel every 50 years. It was called the year of Jubilee. And at that 50-year mark, any debt that anyone had acquired during those 50 years completely wiped out. All debts forgiven. And something else happened. Any land that had been acquired during the last 50 years was given back for free to the original uh, tribes. So somebody could go from bankrupt to a landowner overnight in Israel because God designed this so that wealth wouldn't accumulate in a few small families and other families wouldn't get stuck in a pattern of generational poverty. So when you bought land in Israel, what you really were doing was you were leasing it for how many years it was to the Jubilee. That's actually how they'd calculate costs. If you go to buy land, you would say, well, this land has 10 more years until Jubilee. So really what you're paying for is the crops for the next 10 years. And then the land would go back. And that was the system that was taking place. But there was another safety guard, safeguard put in place. It's kind of the equivalent of our bankruptcy law. If somebody got into a situation where they were completely broke, they couldn't take care of the land anymore, their debts were too high, they had to sell the land before anyone else was allowed to purchase, the nearest family member was always given the first right to buy. And the reason was that would allow the land to stay in the family and the assumption is they're gonna let their family member who fell into a difficult place, still work with them on the land and have safety and provision. It was a way of keeping people out of a bad situation from being taken advantage of. That family member who had the first right to come in and buy the land and protect the other family member was called the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer. So that's part of the tradition that's going on here, but get ready, there's even more. There's another law that took place in the case of somebody getting widowed. So in this culture, it was understood that it was part of the responsibility of men to protect vulnerable women, and particularly when a woman was born, the first protector would have been her father. When she got married, it would be her husband, and then if she had a male son, it would have been his responsibility, even when his father passed, to take care of his mother. That, that, that was the retirement plan, if you will, is your son's going to take care of you in your old age. You see this represented even in Jesus on the cross. As the firstborn son is dying, what's one of his last pieces of business to take care of? He looks at his apostle John and says, hey, take care of mom. Because he understood his firstborn son, that was one of his responsibilities. So what happens if a woman is widowed and has no son to take care of her? There's actually a law to take care of this situation. And the rule was that the nearest brother-in-law was responsible for marrying that widow. For a couple of years. Now, my guess is a lot of you in here, like your life insurance plan does not include marrying your brother-in-law. That's probably not plan A for most of you. Because we have life insurance. That's our plan, right? That's, the, that's what we set up for that kind of scenario. But it was understood that it was a family responsibility to take care of someone in that situation. And that served a couple purposes. One, it protected a woman from getting stuck in a vulnerable situation. Because a unmarried, widowed woman in this day and age did not have very many safe, reputable ways to earn an income outside of marriage. That was just the way the culture was set up. 
So this is a way of protecting women, but it did something else. Remember those whole descendants and tribes idea? They wanted to preserve every line in Israel. So if a man did not have a male descendant, the first, when he passed away, the firstborn son of this new marriage would be counted as the son of the deceased man to preserve the lines. And so this is called leveret marriage. And so all of these traditions, all of these rules are all the, the justice and the legal matters that are all at play in this pretty complicated situation that we're going to read about in Ruth chapter 4. So hopefully, uh, if, if you are part of the culture and you know that, there's a lot of dramatic moments in this story that you're like, oh, that just happened. Without it, it just seems really puzzling. So hopefully that'll give us a little bit more information as we go forward. So continuing in verse 1. Yeah, we're not going to get out of here on time. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Okay, we got to talk about the translation of this word, my friend, because it's a really fun one. It's a Hebrew word um, that kind of it's hard to even know what it means. It's, it's a rhyming word, kind of like in English we have the word hodgepodge. It's a kind of funny sounding Hebrew word like that. And the way it gets used is it's to point to something that you either don't know the name of or you don't care what it's called. So if you say, hey, go to such and such place and pick this up. He went down and he sat down at such and such spot. Well, here it's used to describe a person. The NIV translates it as my friend. That's a little too gentle and kind. I think the net translation captures it really well. He says, come here, what's your name? And sit down. And that's a really good translation of what he's saying. Boaz says, hey, what's your name? Go sit over there. Now, here's the thing. Boaz probably knew his relative's name. The narrator, I think, is making a very strategic choice here. You see, oftentimes when I'm reading biblical narrative, I'm tempted to say, I wish they'd have told us this. I wish they'd have said that. But God inspired the scripture so that we're told exactly what we need to hear and exactly what we need to know. And I think there is something very strategic that in this history book of what God did in his people one person's name, Boaz, is going to be remembered for generations. And one person's name is going to be lost to history. He just gets written down as what's your name. And there's a reason that one name gets remembered and one name gets forgotten. Let's read on and, and see how it plays out. Verse 3. Then he, Boaz, said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Piece of land? Where's that been for three chapters? The narrator is really strategic in the drama of the story to hold this piece of information till this dramatic moment. There's land that could be sold and used to provide for Naomi and Ruth. We don't know exactly the details of what their situation would have been, but for some reason they were not able to profit from the land themselves. But it is part of this Redeemer uh, story that's going on here. This is the opportunity for the kinsmen to buy the land and protect the person in the vulnerable spot. Boaz says, well, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. Notice how he's setting in an honor-shame culture, he is setting the guardian redeemer up in front of all of the elders of the town and saying, hey, there's a vulnerable person here and the land with the chance to take care of them, and I, I knew you would want to do that. So I, I, I thought it was the right thing for me to let you know. There's an opportunity to do the right thing here, guardian redeemer. He says, so I want to tell you in front of all these people seated here in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you. And I am next in line. Notice Boaz is saying, you and I are the only family members. After the two of us, this land goes in the open market and there's no one to take care of Naomi. It's down to you and me to do the right thing. And the Redeemer says, I will redeem it. Now, why does he jump on this so quickly? He recognizes a once-in-a-lifetime financial opportunity. Remember that year of Jubilee rule? Any land you buy goes back to the tribe it belongs to, the family it belongs to at the end of 50 years. But where is the person to inherit this land at the Jubilee? As far as the guardian redeemer knows, you've got one old lady, Ruth, past childbearing years, and when she dies, there is no one to claim this land. 
which means he has a completely unique opportunity in ancient Israel to double his family's wealth with no one to claim this land at the year of Jubilee. He recognizes an amazing opportunity to gain something for himself, to make himself wealthier, and he jumps on it. Yep, I'll do it. I'll buy it. This is a great opportunity for him, except there's more to the story. Verse 5, Boaz says, oh, and um, oh, by the way, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also, because of that whole law we have about widows, uh, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. This just changed the entire calculus. No longer is this an opportunity to double his, his wealth. No longer is this an opportunity to double everything he has. Actually, it's going to cost him a lot because to buy the land, he also has to marry Ruth. And if they have a son, their firstborn son is not considered his heir. He's going to have to split all of his wealth with Ruth's son. Suddenly, this is not an opportunity to get wealthy. This is a responsibility to pay great cost, at great cost to himself to take care of someone else. And the guardian redeemer's response in verse 6, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it for yourself. I cannot do it. And he's out. He's done. And that's how what's-his-name gets forgotten. <laughs> now, in verse 7, we get a, a little aside from the author. And these narrative asides are really important. It says, now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Now, that might seem like a little mundane detail, but it actually tells us something really important about this story. You see, because the author has to explain this little transaction, they would do this thing where they would trade sandals with each other when they made a purchase. He says, now, in the earlier days of Israel, this is how they did things. That tells us that the author, we don't know who wrote Ruth down, but that tells us the author lived at a much later date. You see, if I were to be telling a story about somebody going to the grocery store, I don't have to tell you. Now, when you got ready to pay, uh, we used to have these little rectangular plastic cards that we would carry, and you would pull them out, you'd swipe it on a strip, and, and it would know to charge it to your account. I don't have to explain that to all of you because we all know how that system works. The only reason you would have to explain that is if you're speaking to somebody who's never seen that way of paying. Because he has to explain this transaction, that tells us the author has perspective that the original characters did not. He knows how this story with Ruth is going to fit into the larger story of, of Israel. That's going to come into play in a really big way next week. But in the meantime, we have this little sandal um, ceremony, which we don't know exactly what's going on here. It's some way of showing property. Probably it has to do with the idea that where somebody's foot hits the ground is their property. When Abraham first came to Israel, God said, Every place your foot touches will be yours. And so by taking off the sandal, you're saying my property is becoming your property. And that is a, a visual sign of transaction to show what's happening in front of everybody. Verse 8, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Verse 9, then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, now, this role of elder is, is important here because it, it really challenges a little bit of what the way of our culture and the way we see um, wisdom and leadership. You see, in, in ancient Israel, they had something like the concept of retirement. Uh, there would come a point where you understood with somebody's age, they're not going to be out working the fields anymore. They're physically not capable of doing that. And so they had an even more significant role to play in the village. They had, we talked about that village gate, right? The place where people would congregate, where you'd always pass. It was the responsibility of people who had lived well, who had lived life of integrity, who were recognized by the village as people of age and wisdom to just every day they would get up and they would go sit at the gate and they made themselves available if anyone needed wisdom, if anyone needed guidance. There were no courts or lawyers or police in those days, so if anybody thought that something had been violated, they would bring the case to the elders. And the elders of the village would sit there and rule and witness transactions. They would be the leaders that would hold people accountable because back then they understood that wisdom and the right to lead didn't come from being the youngest person with the newest idea. 
It didn't come from having the most credentials or the most social media followers. The right to lead came from having lived a life of character and integrity. If you had shown that you knew how to live life well, then you could be entrusted with helping other people live life well. This tradition of the village elders in Israel is actually going to be what sets up the office of church elder in the New Testament. And it's driven primarily on character and life lived. And so Boaz wants these elders, these men, to witness this transaction. So he announces to the elders and all the people, Today, you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown today. You are witnesses. One of the crucial things that Boaz is doing here is he is making this marriage, he's making this process public, visible, and legitimate in front of everybody. You see, in chapter 3, when Ruth came to the threshing floor at night to make this proposal, he had every opportunity to take advantage of her. Here is a foreigner, a widow, In poverty, he could have done anything he wanted, and he's a man of standing. If she made any accusation, you think anyone in town's going to believe her? No, he had every opportunity to abuse her and take what he wanted and have no obligation to care for her after. And instead, he said, I see that you're a woman of character. I see your loyalty to Naomi. Go home before anyone suspects anything, and I'm going to take care of this in a public, legitimate way that maintains your character and maintains mine. One of the beautiful things about that, we get this question a lot in premarital when people ask the question, hey, why does it matter to wait for sex until marriage if we know we're getting married anyway? Isn't it kind of all the same? And There's a a couple different layers to it. One is simply that that's God's design and what God calls us to. And secondly, the idea of honoring the boundaries of a covenant is one of the things that is central to the marriage relationship. That you know that that other person is going to honor the commitments you've made. Choosing to wait until the marriage day actually tells your spouse, I am someone who honors boundaries. It actually shows that I am willing to honor the boundaries that God puts in front of us so you can trust me that after we're married, I'll continue to do so. Now, there is grace and mercy and forgiveness for all the mistakes that we make along the way, but Boaz is showing that he wants to do everything within the public integrity of a covenant relationship to protect the integrity of this marriage. And so he says this publicly, And then, verse 11, the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. There's a lot of references to different names here. It's hard to overstate the significance of what this group of people is saying. Rachel and Leah were the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are the matriarchs that built the entire nation. So think about what these people of Bethlehem are saying. May you, Ruth, the foreigner, the Moabite, the widow, the poor and the outcast, may you be blessed like the most honored women in our nation's history. May the Gentile outsider have the full blessing of the most cherished and honored women in our nation. This is a foreshadowing and a hint of what God wanted to do for all of us. That the Gentiles, that the nations would be brought into the family of God with full inclusion called children of Abraham. That there is no boundary to God's love 
of race, ethnicity, nationality, that it is going to break through all of that. It also addresses what, unfortunately, is a really shameful teaching in the history of the church. You see, some have taught that the Bible forbids interracial marriage. And they base that on the Old Testament command for Israel not to marry foreign women. And they say, you see right there, you're not supposed to marry outside of your nation, outside of your race. So what do we do with Ruth? How do we reconcile this story? Well, that whole thing about not marrying foreign women, you need to read the rest of the command. It says, don't marry foreign women because they will lead you to worship their foreign gods. The command has nothing to do with nationality, race, or ethnicity. It has everything to do with faith. The definition of foreign woman in that command is someone who worships a foreign god. The issue is, don't marry someone who worships another god and is going to lead you to abandon your god. What did Ruth say in Ruth chapter 1 when she followed Naomi? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. The moment Ruth put her faith in Yahweh, she became eligible for full inclusion into the community. So if you're to apply that command about marriage to today, the point would be this. As a follower of Jesus, seek a spouse who follows Jesus. That's the command, is that we be united in marriage in our loyalty to Christ. That is what the scriptures are calling us to. One of the things I find really interesting about this story is the, the way ancient people told history and sometimes modern people tell history, Ruth's story should not get told. She's not a king. She's not a general. She didn't lead any great battles. She's not a hero. She's just a poor widowed woman who got married and everything worked out well for her. So why does this story get written down? As we're going to find out next week, God has this wonderful habit of taking insignificant people and making their story significant because how he uses them in their, his plan. We get to hear Ruth's story, not because Ruth was so phenomenal, but because she trusted God who did something incredible through her faith. If we're trying to figure out what is this story telling us, how does it fit, what do we walk away from, uh, there's some parallelism taking place. Similar to Jonah, how you had a situation in chapter 1 play out again in the end. In Ruth chapter 1, we had a relationship of three people. Naomi, who is in a vulnerable situation, and two relatives with the opportunity to show loyalty to her. Both initially said, I'll do it, but when the Height of cost became apparent. Orpah faded away, and Ruth stuck with her. Now the same situation plays out again. Ruth is in a vulnerable situation. Two relatives have the opportunity to show their loyalty. What's his name? Sees the great cost and walks away. Boaz chooses to be loyal to Ruth no matter what the cost to himself. This entire book of Ruth is trying to define for us a concept. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which means loyal, loving kindness. The kind of love that sticks with someone no matter what, even at great personal cost. Both of these stories are trying to draw attention. This is what that kind of love looks like. This is a picture of loyal love. One of my favorite Old Testament writers says that any of these Old Testament stories can usually be applied at three different levels. The first level would kind of be everyday life in Israel. And if you're an Israelite hearing the story of Ruth, probably the first application you're going is, oh yeah, this is the kind of community we should be. We should be the kind of community that loves generously and protects the vulnerable. No one should ever fall through the cracks in our community. We should be the kind of people who look for those who are in vulnerable situations and give at great cost to ourself to love our neighbor well. That would have been the first level of application that we could take, is how do we show this kind of loyal love to vulnerable people around us? But there would have been another level this story was operating at. If you remember all the way back in chapter 1, we saw that this was taking place in the days of the judges, in the days when Israel kept abandoning the Lord their God and chasing after other gods. 
all of the vocabulary of this book, redemption, chesed, loyal love, even that word clinging to when we read back in chapter one that Ruth clung to Naomi, that's the same verb that's supposed to describe how Israel was supposed to be with Yahweh. They were supposed to cling to him and not cling to foreign gods. This whole picture of loyal love is supposed to show Israel, this is how you are supposed to be with your God, who, by the way, redeemed you out of slavery in Egypt. Be loyal to the God who has been so loyal to you. And finally, without stealing the thunder for next week, this story is also operating as a part of a much bigger story. We're going to see that God is going to use the loyal love of Ruth to set us up for the ultimate redeemer, to set us up for the family member who would come along and see his family in a desperate situation and redeem them at immeasurable cost to himself. We're going to celebrate this cost that our redeemer paid in a moment by taking communion. The elements are going to get passed around. They're in little double cups, so you just twist the top cup off to get the bottom one. Ephesians chapter 1 describes this redemption when it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The story of Ruth is the story of abundant grace and generosity given to a person in need at great cost. And it's pointing us to the picture of the Savior who lavished his grace on us. We're going to pass the elements as we sing. Hang on to them. We'll take them in a moment to remember the love that Christ has poured out on us. God, we love you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the story of Ruth. And God, I pray that you will make us a loyal people, that we will be the kind of community that doesn't allow anyone to fall through the cracks that we'll be a kind of community that gives of ourselves and that we'll be a kind of community that is radically loyal to our Lord in everything. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from
their sins by faith I saw the street thy flowing wounds of redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die and shall be till I die and shall be till I die
sing that one more time as we hold the elements. Just remembering his sacrifice. Just praise his name. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. Three in one. God of glory. Majesty. Praise forever to the King. Father, it's humbling to sing God of glory, majesty. The King of kings and Lord of lords would humble himself. He would empty himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we come together as the body of Christ in communion with one another to remember you through communion. So we remember your body that was broken for us. Take and eat in remembrance. And we remember his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin and my sin and the sin of the world. Take and drink in remembrance. Father, may the rest of our week and the rest of our lives be a practice of trusting and obeying as we walk by the Spirit and truth and life. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning, Fellowship. If you like prayer, we have the Arkans in the prayer room. They love to pray over you. Go in peace this week.